Hello there, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Let's Chat. I'm Claire Sands, host of and blog writer for The Silent Why, a podcast exploring all things related to loss and grief. And this week, we're focusing on these areas within the workplace. We've all probably worked in an environment that didn't know how to fairly handle sick leave, annual leave and bereavement. And it is a very complicated area to get right. But that's why people like my guests today are around to help businesses. In these Let's Chat episodes, I specifically chat to a guest who has experience or expertise in a particular area relating to loss or grief. So whereas the 101 loss episodes chat to people who have been through specific losses, Let's Chat episodes are for me to talk to people on subjects that can help us navigate grief and loss. And through each episode, because I want to capture some useful magic, a bit like the Hermans on our usual episodes, check out silentwide.com slash Herman for more on those fellas, from each of these chats I'm building a tool shed, metaphorically, of equipment to help us face and get through loss. So at the end of each episode, I ask our guest what kind of tool their subject is and then I add it to my ever-growing shed. On this episode of Let's Chat, I'm welcoming back Samantha Langford from Lincolnshire in the UK, who's a workplace health and wellbeing consultant with personal experience of bereavement, grief and loss. And she set up Gaia Workplace Wellbeing Limited to help businesses maintain good health, positive wellbeing and productivity. This might involve audits of what businesses have in place, as well as writing and implementing policies to help set up support and resources which allow organisations to thrive in all areas relating to grief. We've actually had Sam on the podcast before to share with us about the death of her brother when she was just 16, so you can also listen to more about her personal story through the link in the show notes. Now, if you're an employer, you might think you've got a tidy process for bereavement leave in place that covers when an employee loses a grandparent, parent or even an uncle or aunt. But what about the more tricky griefs? Even if I just look through previous podcast guests for inspiration, I could ask you, would your workplace know how to handle someone going through the grief of infertility? What about someone going through a divorce? What about baby or child loss at any age? What if they lost a grandchild to shaken baby syndrome? What about if they lost a young daughter in a school shooting? What if their husband died in an accident and they were left as a young widow and a mother navigating a police investigation? What about if someone's husband came out as transgender, but then their baby died? What about if a woman is going through menopause? Do you know what anticipatory grief looks like? Who in your workplace would be equipped to have conversations around these kinds of grief and loss? It's an incredibly complex area for businesses to do well. But as Sam points out in this interview, the minute you employ even one person, you're going to have to deal with grief because everybody goes through it eventually. And sadly, with our culture the way it is now, The emphasis on the workplace needing to know how to handle this is getting even more crucial. Which might not sound fair, but it is the reality of what businesses are facing and it can't be ignored any longer. However, there's lots of good news, including ways to implement this kind of support for all budgets, as Sam will explain. And there are people out there to help you. So grab a cup of tea, a coffee or maybe a virgin mojito, I'm getting into those at the moment, and relax with me and Sam as we chat how to deal with grief in the workplace. I am Sam Langford. I am a consultant health and wellbeing professional. I run my own business, which is Gaia Workplace Wellbeing, which helps businesses to help their ecosystem thrive in all aspects of health and wellbeing within the workplace. 
I travel quite a lot and deal with a, a lot of different clients. At the moment, I've got one main client based in Sheffield, but I also do a lot of associate training work um, for a company called March on Stress, which is around trauma um, support for employees and sustaining resilience in the workplace. So they're peer support programs and I help deliver their training packages to, to companies. The background, how I came to be where I am, is I used to be a crime scene investigator for the police for about 10 years. So I got used to dealing with trauma on a day-to-day basis. And when you come away from that world, you realise that actually it's not just the policing world that has this aspect of trauma as part of their lives and their work. And there are a lot of organisations where that almost becomes part of the work and no one's really thought about how they support people. So that's where all of that sort of side of things comes from. And along with that is my passion for helping organisations to support people through bereavement, not just at the time of it, but throughout their careers so for the long term. So there's a lot of different things going on, but basically it all comes down to making sure that people are wholly supported through their health and well-being, regardless of where they work. So started as crime scene investigator, I feel like I need to start there because that just sounds fascinating. So how did you get from that to doing what you're doing now? And, you know, were you happy to leave that? Because that sounds like a fascinating job. I'm sure a lot of people are really interested in that area. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was. uh, It was a fascinating job. And right from being a teenager is what I'd always wanted to do. I was originally going to be a forensic scientist and um, sort of changed and went down the route of becoming a scenes of crime officer, SOCO, as they were when I started. Um, And I absolutely loved it. And I managed to land the most amazing job of doing that in Bermuda. Wow. Yeah. So, but unfortunately for me, while I was over there, I developed a chronic um, neurological condition. So behaving very much like MS in that I was finding loss of sensation in parts of my body, dizzy spells. So obviously it was getting to the point where I wasn't able to do the job anymore. There's an awful lot of getting called out, being by yourself at scenes. You've got to be fit and well to be able to do that. So I I made the decision to move back to the UK where I started treatment. Um, And that was about 10, 11 years ago. So, yeah, once I came back to the UK, I was like, right, well, what on earth, what on earth do I do now? And I actually went into learning and development and training civilian investigators for the Independent Office for Police Conduct. So the the oversight body that looks into issues with, with the police, any sort of allegations, complaints or deaths in custody or those sorts of things. Um, so I was involved in the L&D team in training new investigators in investigative processes and dealing with crime scenes and all of those sorts of all the um, police and criminal evidence act, all of those things that uh, that govern everything that investigators do. And um, it was while I was working there, really, that I really started to get um, passionate about workplace well-being. I was living with an invisible condition, a chronic condition. No one else outwardly knew there was anything wrong with me. But inwardly, I was really struggling. I was really fatigued because it's neurological. I was struggling with vision. I was struggling with um, cognitive sort of things. I'd forget words or I'd be training and, and words, entire sentences would come out in the wrong order. So I really started to advocate for people with invisible illnesses and look into how we can also support the investigators with the nature of the work. You know, some of some of the investigators were straight from university, never really been exposed to anything traumatic. And we were expecting them to either view body worn footage from incidents involving the police or watch CCTV from custody suites. So, you know, there's a lot of things that they perhaps weren't quite prepared for. And that's when we started exploring how we could support them with um, sort of like the traumatic aspects of their work. 
it spiralled from there, um, really. I then did a Nibosh qualification in workplace health and wellbeing, and I then went on to do a, a master's in workplace health and wellbeing. I moved on from the civil service about three years ago and was working for a, a private company. Throughout the pandemic, I think a lot of organisations struggled and the health and wellbeing budget is invariably one of the first to go. And unfortunately, I was made redundant. It's not that it didn't sit well with me because it's not going to sit well with most people finding that they suddenly don't have a job. But I realised that actually there were an awful lot of organisations in this situation where they they didn't have the budget to employ someone to look after health and wellbeing. And that's when I started my company. So my aim is to specifically help sort of small, medium enterprises and charities that perhaps can't afford to have a dedicated person in their organisation to help them with workplace health and wellbeing. So I can help them, whether it's with guidance or policies or, you know, helping them to tap into other resources that are in the in the area or training. It is all aspects of health and wellbeing. But I do have some topics that I'm particularly interested in, trauma obviously being one of them, workplace stress and how we manage that, and bereavement, um, which probably spans from my own interesting journey of bereavement whilst whilst working. So yeah, interesting journey, to say the least. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's so interesting. I love that you've got that experience there, because it's not easy going through an invisible illness, I think, especially if you're someone who finds it hard to uh, verbalise what it is that, that you're facing. You know, I've had things that are internal that you can't really see. And I'm not somebody who finds it very easy to ask for help or to say, I'm not feeling well. Even mm. just something basic at work, if you feel like you want to go home, that stressed me out for hours sitting at yeah. my desk thinking, I need to tell someone to go it's horrible yeah so to have someone who's been there and really knows that I feel like that's a really valuable thing so if you've got like a, a workplace and I think if I think around people I know that work in offices especially you might have someone there that's bereaved or going through grief or an illness or something is happening with their mental health mostly I think the employers are trying to navigate how much time to give them off when to give them time off and that's probably about it there's not much else going on that they don't know when to bring them back again they don't know how to help them there might not be any other way of helping them there's no like counseling available there's no support so when you've got a basic workplace that's sort of functioning like that what is it that you bring to that that helps them do that a bit differently for me the first thing is is you need to speak to the employees so if you can speak to people who have been through a bereavement or a grief of a loss because we know it's not always about the death of you know a loved one we've got all those different aspects of grief whether it's house fires etc so it's to speak to employees and to find out what their experience was what worked for them and what didn't work for them and all too often when we're we're having these conversations we miss out on that element organizations go well we've got all these policies in place it clearly states in the absence policy that you'll get time off for this that and the other so all the information's out there but we forget that when someone is dealing with something like this when we are stressed we become blinkered and you know we get tunnel vision we're focused just on what's in front of us we need someone to step up and to guide us through that and to tell us what's available to us how we can find it and where that information is we need that signposting and to be able to do that you need a clear process you need to have policies and procedures and guidance in place that empower managers to have the right conversations with people and to understand you know what what's out there we're not expecting managers to be bereavement counsellors or to be experts but just to be able to have a compassionate conversation with someone and find out what their needs are and then they can go away and you know perhaps have you know have a conversation with human resources or if they use um, a HR consultant if they're a small organization to have those conversations about what the the next best step is 
And I can help with that. I can help, you know, help them to come up with a policy, devise a policy that covers all those different aspects of grief, loss and bereavement. And actually, I think it's something that we're going to be working more towards now. The UK Bereavement Commission um, produced a report with eight recommendations, eight principles for change and how we can support bereavement. And the report was called Bereavement is Everyone's Business. And the second point in there is creating sensitively supportive workplaces, schools and colleges. And one of their recommendations is legislation that brings in bereavement policies. So it is going to be something that organisations are going to need to start thinking about. So rather than the odd line in an absence policy or a special leave policy, there needs to be something that's much more robust and gives much more clear guidance on what is available, how to access it. And, you know, to support the staff members that are supporting the bereaved individuals through it, because they're going to be the ones having that conversation. Yeah, and I think it's so important that there is something in place that makes it, as as far as you can do, sort of like a, a level playing field for bereavements and things. Because I've been in workplaces where it's just been done sort of at the manager's discretion. Um, and that depends on the person going through it. If the person's mm. particularly vocal about the fact they want more time off, they get it. And if someone doesn't mention anything at all, they don't. And I remember going into work the day after my grandma died and really kind of having a tough day of it, but thinking, well, no one said anything different. And then there was another woman a couple of desks down that, you know, had a, a parent that was unwell in Africa and flew out there to see them thinking they were going to die. They didn't die. She came back about four weeks later. No one knew where she'd been, but no one dare say anything. And it's just that sort of, I mean, they're, they're different. They are different griefs. And I understand that can be really tricky. And you have to draw a line somewhere because you can't have everybody having four weeks off for any death that they know about. But at the same time, if there's not any kind of policy there that kind of puts something in yeah. place, it, it just makes it an even worse place to kind of work, really. It, it definitely does. And then you end up with this sort of this, this discord between different individuals. You know, you might get one person whose parent has died and they their manager said, well, you can have three days or someone else whose parents died and they've got two weeks off. And it, it, then you can create, well, you know, well, how has that happened? Is that, well, it's down to the manager discretion. And that's where we need to be providing extra support for our managers to say, these are the type of conversations to have. These are the questions that you need to you need to have. Because actually, from the outside, it might be, well, the person who's had three days off, they might not have actually had a particularly close relationship with their parent. It mm. might be that actually, you know, their, their parental figure was an aunt, an uncle or a grandparent. So it's understanding all the nuances behind that. And I think the change in the family unit is something that needs to be addressed as well, because all too often when you see anything in the absence policy, it states, you know, you'll get a week off for a close family member. Well, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? And who's made that decision? Um, you know, we, we need to start thinking more about because bereavement, it's like our, our resilience, it's very dynamic and it depends on each individual, what they've gone through before in their lives, what's happening at that time, as well as the relationship of, of that person. I've had um, male colleagues die and I've been profoundly affected because they've reminded me of my brother or it's been at the similar time of year to the death of my brother. So trying to explain that to a line manager to say, well, you know, you weren't particularly close to this person. Why do you need this extra time off? It's like, well, actually, because what it's done is it's re-triggered all of those bereavement responses I've had before. So we need to be able to empower managers and sort of all our people managers to be able to have these compassionate conversations to really understand how someone is impacted and what's going to benefit them. Because obviously not everyone's going to want the time off. 
some people will prefer to be in the workplace rather than be at home. So we, we need to be able to yeah, empower these conversations and, and to make sure that what we're offering is suitable for the individuals that we're offering it to rather than this blanket well you'll get a week off if it's a close family member and if not we're going to make you use your annual leave because that's another bugbear of mine <laughs> bereavement's not a holiday it's really not a holiday and i think you know if you have run out of bereavement leave then sick leave sick leave is is the next option i hear all too often people coming back from having time off to find that they'd run out of bereavement leave and their manager's just taken all their annual leave entitlement while they've been off that's not what it's for at all no gosh the more you kind of look at it the more you realize how complicated Mm. it gets to try and sort these things out because even like you know the death of a pet I've said before on the podcast you know for some people that is not a big deal you know the the pet rabbit dies they didn't really see much of it it was the kids but for some people who live on their own who've never had any meaningful relationships with humans that you know that's going to rock their life as big as some other human deaths and that's not how it should be in life we'd like to think that you know humans would matter more but the reality is a lot of people don't have those sorts of relationships with humans in that way so they connect to other things and even like you said the death of a parent doesn't mean it's it's a big deal even if you haven't ever spoken to that parent Mm. and they die that can be complicated enough to throw you through a loop more than a close relationship so it's oh it's so complicated it really is and 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 I think and this is something that came out in the bereavement commission report is that we're starting to see more complex bereavement and people experiencing these complexities of grief and all these different feelings that come with the death of someone and like you say if it's someone that actually you've not had a close relationship with that can bring just as many strange emotions as someone that you have had that close relationship with because you might not be grieving and then you're going to feel guilty because you're not grieving oh I should be grieving and it's really really difficult and there's a lot there's a lot for people to process there um and I think you know a lot of people can feel that the workplace isn't the place to support people through bereavement but actually it's the one place where they're going to be going every single day they've got their evenings and the weekends but that's not to say that they've got that social circle around them after a little while, you know, if they do have their family around them, their family's going to go back to their lives. So if, especially if they live by themselves. So the place where all of that social support is, is in the workplace. It's absolutely the most ideal place to make sure that we're checking in with people who have suffered a bereavement just to check do they know what support is out there do they need some help in accessing it because there's so so many aspects of it and people that live alone they might have estates to deal with and all of the financial issues that come with that as well it, it is such a huge thing and I think if we get this right in the workplace and people feel 100% supported they're going to give much more to that organisation. And I think I think both Marie Curie, they've, they've done a report, and the Bereavement Commission identified, I think it's about 50% of people would leave an organisation if they weren't properly supported through a bereavement. And that's just the ones that would choose to. Sadly, I know far too many scenarios where it's not been well managed and they've ended up with sort of capability performance issues and, and leaving a job because actually they've just not been coping with the death of someone they've not been given the right support they've not been given the right time off and they've struggled and because of that it's led to performance issues and it's led to them leaving and that's just absolutely awful that that should happen because you've experienced something which all of us are going to experience and that for me is the thing with bereavement in the workplace it is the one thing that you can guarantee someone is going to experience as soon as you employ someone at some point there will be grief, loss or bereavement. 
we can't escape it we just can't so why aren't we doing more to support people that are going through it because it's inevitable yeah definitely it's not like it's an interview question where they're like are you going to face grief and loss while you're here (laughs) it's a guaranteed it's definitely going to happen and I think it's a sort of I think it's necessary but I think it shows you the changing times Uh, also you know we're recognizing a lot of these things that might not have been recognized before but I think going back decades you'd hopefully have got that support in the family or in the community or around you the ideal was maybe it was outside of work but because people had all these support units and things they were part of, we were just in groups a bit more as people. Yeah. But with, with the internet and with social stuff and with, you know, Zoom and everything, we're now so much more isolated from real relationships that you're right, the, the most time most people spend all year is going to be with their colleagues mm. and under their employees. So whether they like it or not, they, they, they're going to have to deal with all these situations and learn how, how to do it properly. Just tell us, we're talking to you on a different episode in detail about the death of your brother, but just give us a synopsis of that and how you think that might be helping you in helping others through what you're doing now. Yeah, so my brother died. I was 16 years old when my brother died by autoerotic asphyxiation. So a topic very difficult to talk about. Um, So my entire working life, I have worked as a bereaved individual. And obviously, for the first few years of that, I was heavily impacted every anniversary of his death, probably more so because I wasn't able to vocalise what I was experiencing and what I was going through. And I have had I've had just about every response you can think of when it comes to dealing with bereavement in the workplace. I've had some amazing supportive managers that have been aware that the anniversary is coming up. And for that month, they've said, right, well, let's lighten the load of work you've got at the moment. Let's not have any deadlines. You know, what can I do to support you? right through to the other end where one manager noticed that I always seemed to be off sick around the same time of year and when I explained it to him his response was well you can't really use that as an excuse forever so I've experienced so many different responses and I just think you know that that manager from that moment on I was completely disengaged Mm. that was it he got the bare minimum from me because I thought well what's the point if I can't get you to understand how this is impacting me and why this is continuing to impact me, then what's the point? So instantly, how someone responds to um, an experience of, you know, if you've got a team, how you respond to a person in that team and what they're going through is going to make a massive difference for how they engage their performance. And so, you know, if you're an organisation, if you're a business leader, you could suddenly start to say, well, hang on a minute, this is a no brainer. Let's just support people. Let's just be a compassionate employer because the more we do that, okay, they might need two or three weeks off when they, you know, suffer a a loss. But if we support them through that and we can support them through that for the rest of their career, then we've got a really productive and engaged workforce. It feels like a no-brainer to me, but it might be because I've been on that flip side of it and I've seen the, the side where actually it hasn't been handled particularly well. And I, you know, you're sitting there thinking there must be a better way. There must be a better way to do this. And that's where I think my passion for this has come through. And I work with an awful lot of different organisations and understand the different training that's available to organisations. One of them, for instance, um, Hospice UK run a compassionate employers programme. And it's exactly what it does, what it says on the tin. It, you know, it empowers organisations to have this compassionate culture so that when their employees suffer grief, loss or bereavement, they know how to handle it. They've got the processes in place and they've got this, you know, this wealth of information there at their fingertips to be able to support people rather than it happening and then scrabbling around going, oh, what do we do now? Probably you know, sort of 70% of the time, I think that's what happens. 
And, you know, we haven't even touched on death in service, what happens when an employee dies and how that's dealt with. And that's an entire another aspect. What do you think are some of the hardest situations that employers have to navigate in this area? I think a lot of people just have this natural assumption that, yes, okay, at some point one of their their team members or a member of their staff is going to lose someone. But we always think, oh, you know, we're going to lose a parent. No one ever considers them being the parent have lost a child or they're being, you know, heaven forbid, they're being a police investigation, whether it's potential murder or, you know, accidents and all these other aspects. Because when there's a police investigation, invariably there's media attention. So suddenly you've got someone who's not just grieving, but they've now got all of these legal processes to navigate. They've got media attention into them and their lives. And they're supposed to get up and come to work every day because technically the only statutory leave for a parent is is two weeks. So you've got all of that to deal with. When there is a police investigation, there is so much going on. You're constantly in contact with the police. And this is, you know, for a quick investigation. If it's a long period of time, this could go on for months, years. Coroner's investigations are another one where there's a lot of questions being asked and a lot of probing into someone's life and who they were. And that's really difficult for any family. You know, whether that's through my aunt died through domestic abuse and you've got that police investigation that goes on, you've then got the court case. If you've got an employee who wants to be there, how do you support them through that? This is more than just bereavement. This is the myriad emotions that come with that. And there are so many, so many different scenarios, and you'll be aware through the podcast, all these different things that can impact on people and the processes, those legal processes that have to be navigated. Like on one of your podcasts, when someone is grieving, but there isn't actually a body. So you can't go through those rituals. And it's surprising how much we need those rituals to help us normalise what we're experiencing and move on. So it's not just a simple case of someone is losing an elderly person in their lives. They've got to the end of their lives. They've lived an amazing life and we can celebrate that. There's that traumatic element to it. There's all these different things. So the more we can empower our our managers and our staff and the more we can help with that compassionate approach to these conversations, the, the more we can support people through these things in the workplace. Do you find that people tend to approach you for help before anything happens or does something like that happen and then they're sort of scrabbling around trying to like, oh, somebody needs to come in and help us with this? At the moment, it's very much reactive. It is very much reactive. And as the Bereavement um, Commission report suggests, you know, we need to be much more proactive about this. We need to get those 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 steps in place. You know, very few organisations even have a process for, for a death in service. You know, does the line manager know what information needs to go to human resources and payroll, you know, all these sorts of things that need to be communicated to the family what this is what's going to happen next this is what will happen this is when their final pay will come through and all those sorts of things but you know just around that support for bereavement it invariably tends to be sadly that there's been a poor experience by someone who has either left the organization and cited it in an exit interview if there's been one or there's you know been some bad feeling or they've just said you know what I'm not supported I'm just going to leave So we do need to start being much more proactive about this. And I think a lot of this has come from the pandemic and a lot of organisations through what we've gone through in the pandemic and those organisations that have been trying to support people with the, the unimaginable loss and not being able to attend a funeral, not being able to say goodbye to people to how they've dealt with that and I think organisations are starting to see that actually we need to be more in tune with this we need to be more prepared for these conversations and how we support people 
What are the sort of common barriers you come up against as to why people might not employ these kind of things? Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to it's just uh, our nature, isn't it? We don't want to talk about death. No one wants to sit down and, you know, let's have a lovely conversation about death today, um, except for me, obviously. <laughs> and, me. And, and that's it. We, 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 don't, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to face our own mortality. Invariably, we don't know what to say to people. So we think, you know, the best thing to do is just let them, just let them get on with it by themselves. But actually, that can do more harm than good, especially in the workplace. If an employee comes back to work having had time off and no one's mentioning the person that they lost or talking to them, it's just even more isolating than what they're going through. There are so many really simple things that we can say to people. Say, look, you know, I don't know what to say. There are no words. I know there are no words, but I'm here for you. I'm here to listen to you if you want to talk. And just allowing people that space. And there are some brilliant, the Sue Rinder Grief Kind um, campaign is brilliant. There's some little videos there and just, you know, tips on how to have these conversations and what to say to people. Because I think most of the time that is what stops us from being proactive because we don't know what to say and how to approach it. I feel like a lot of the places I've worked, a lot of managers have functioned under more of a fearful kind of mentality. This sort of like, if we ask people their opinion on something, if we get people involved, then we're going to have to deal with all the different opinions and we're not going to be able to please everybody. So it's easy just to not do it. Or if we allow them to have more annual leave or more sick time or more bereavement time, then people are going to abuse it. They're going to take too much. We're not going to know what's genuine. I feel like they function a lot under that kind of fearful kind of stance rather than thinking actually if we do this 90% of people are probably going to really benefit from it there's always someone that takes advantage and unfortunately they seem to wreck it for everyone else but I feel like a lot of people function under the assumption that everybody's like that which is is so damaging it really is and I think you're right there and I've had some conversations um, over the last few months that have been quite similar to that it's like oh you know we've got people who are off on sick and they just keep getting signed off but it's just bereavement. It's like, well, actually, you've got absolutely no idea how complex that bereavement might be. And what's happened to that person previously in their life, they may well be needing absolutely loads of extra support. But you're right, there's this sort of assumption that, well, we can't do that because people will abuse it. Well, why don't we try it? And let's see. Because by not doing it, you're you're not providing that support for like you say 90 99% of your employees because you think this small minority might abuse it it's like there are always going to be people that go right each year I'm allowed this number of sick days before I hit the trigger oh I'm going to take them whether I'm sick or not there's always going to be that person there's always going to be and there's nothing you can do about that so you know there's only so many times someone can come in and go oh I need two weeks off because the pet dogs died and it becomes that and that's something that I think because managers think well I don't know how to handle that I don't know how to approach that if that happens we go well let's just not do anything and rather than shying away from those difficulties we need to be you know trusting our employees we need to trust people who think you know if you're coming in and saying I need time off because there's been a death in my family we need to trust them that what they're saying to us is the truth and that's what they need and if it goes on so that they need sick leave, well, let's support them. Let's have conversations with them. What can we do as an employer to help? You know, do you want to come in just for a lunchtime to see your team and be with your team? Let's get try and get you back in slowly and around the people that want to support you. What can we do to support someone rather than go in, oh, well, they're off sick with bereavement. I'm not sure I actually believe them, but let's just leave them doing what they're doing and hope they come back. 
how amazing would it be if, like you said, there was a dedicated person in your office that looked after everything to do with like bereavement, sick, mm. all that kind of stuff. So that if you had any of these situations, you went to that person or they're the ones who phoned you, yeah. had the conversation with you. It would actually stop a lot of people taking advantage because those people don't want deep conversations about why they're off. No. <laughs> they actually just want to take advantage. Yeah. So it would probably prevent that. And I've heard of, um, and I don't know how many of these are true. You see them circulating on LinkedIn and things at various points of companies that have done this, these extreme policies of unlimited annual leave and they've left it up to their employees or they've done um you can choose your own pay but it's public and actually the majority of people i seem to remember the annual leave one most people didn't take their full allowance every year because a lot of people are good people who work hard at their job and if they enjoy where they work they don't really want to take as much annual leave yeah and if the pay is public People then tend to choose their pay fairly because the admin person is not going to say, I want more than the FD. It's, it's not going to work like that. It's going to be more kind of, well, I think I'm worth this. What do you yeah. think? And I think, yeah, that would be such a lovely way to function. But I also think, unfortunately, a lot of managers, they tend to work up from other positions. But at no point do we ever train them to manage people. Mm. And it's just not there. So let alone talking about bereavement and death. It's not in their wheelhouse. They've been promoted to this point. And they're just not fit for the job or they're not trained and supported for the job. Mm. And then that causes so many more problems. This is it. I mean, you're, abs- you're absolutely right. I just think all of this comes down to, and that's what workplace health and wellbeing comes down to, is making or helping to make a business somewhere where someone wants to be. They want to come into work. They enjoy what they do. They feel like they're making a contribution that they're valued for what they do. They agree with the values of, of the organisation. So, yeah. They're then not going to, you know, take the mic or whatever, you know, it's just they're just they're just going to to be themselves. And that's what it's all about. But I do think there is this fear, isn't there, that um, if we do this, then people will abuse it. Yeah, it, it is. It is a fascinating aspect of work, really. <laughs> I think it is anyway. I could literally talk about it all day. <laughs> so tell me a bit about what you what you would do. So if you get called in, you get a phone call, come and help us. We're in a situation or we want to put something in place before that situation occurs. What does it look like? Where do you start? And what does that process look like if employers are listening and they're thinking, how does this actually work? So I'm actually doing this with an organisation at the moment. So the first thing we've done is um, I've gathered any policies they have that mention bereavement leave and reviewed what's in there and then I produce um, a list of recommendations so using things like the bereavement commission report and what they recommend for for bereavement in the workplace and my own experience gathered over years as to how to put together a grief loss and bereavement standalone policy so rather than it being in special leave or in the absence management policy it's it's completely separate so I then go through, make some recommendations as to the language that we use, you know, let's stop referring to close family members and let's be more open and inclusive with the language that we use. And I probably also make some recommendations for how to support managers in having those conversations. So some guidance for managers around bereavement and loss. In one organisation, we created um, a bereavement hub on their intranet. There was a wealth of resources there. So everything from fertility issues, prenatal issues, all of those sorts of things, right through to um, anticipatory grief. So people that are carers or people, you know, who've got loved ones with terminal illnesses and all the nuances and the, the different emotions that come with that. So there's this hub full of information where people can go either if they're experiencing themselves or whether they're supporting someone. There's so many different things that we can do. And with this organisation, along with looking at their bereavement policy and how 
we, we get that information out there. We're also looking at training for their line managers. So they have a program for new line managers go through a, a training program, which includes all sorts of health and safety and human resources processes. So we're looking at having building on the day they already have around health and well-being, which kind of concentrates just on workplace stress at the moment, but expanding that one so that managers know how to look after themselves. And two, let's have a look at this, how to actively listen when a team member is talking to you, how to have these compassionate conversations and that you don't have to have all the answers, you know, where you'll go to get that information, who's there to support you. So there really are a number of different things that I can do to help organisations with this. And I've got examples of bereavement policies that I can share when I talk to someone say, you know, this doesn't need to be lengthy. You know, this is a really simple one, but it's making sure that that taps into pay and payroll for statutory leave and things like that as well. So it can be quite a big piece of work, to be completely honest, especially for an organisation who's perhaps starting and they don't have anything and they're just sort of like, oh, we deal with each case of bereavement as and when it happens. So if someone's in that situation, it can be really daunting to know where to start. So that's where I can come in to have these conversations and say, you know, can I reach out to some of your employees that have been through a bereavement in the last couple of years and see if they want to talk to me about what that experience was like. Then I can get that really rich data, that experiential sort of data, um, and take that back to an organisation and say, you know, these are the things that you've done which are really great, Let's get that in a policy. You're doing that brilliantly. But actually, there's a few other bits and pieces here that we can start to build on and we can start to look at what that looks like. And how does it work out, not specifics, but cost-wise, if people are looking at this thing, well, it sounds like a great idea, but it also sounds really expensive. Can you do it in different stages? Is there different brackets of what you can pay for? How does What does that look like? Absolutely. I mean, if working with me, so I'm sort of aiming at working with SMEs and, and organisations under 250 and I have sort of sort of a price point that reflects that. But equally, things like the Hospice UK, they're compassionate employers. You can just join that and you join this sort of community of other organisations that have joined the Compassionate Employees Programme and you get all access to policies and guidance and all those things and training for line managers. So depending on the size of the organisation, and the budget that's available, I think there are, you know, there are options out there for, for, for everybody. An audit of policies, um, depending on the size of the organisation, depending on sort of how many sort of policies there are. So for that, I would review all of the policies that relate to, I mean, if, if we're looking at a specific area, so it might be menopause or it might be bereavement, I would do all those reviews and produce some recommendations. If that organisation then said, well, that's great, but we haven't got the time to write the policy, can you go and wait and draft it? Then there's additional for there there as well. It's really difficult to quantify because it depends on what the base point is. So an organisation that doesn't have any base point, then you're obviously looking at much more work. You've got that data collection piece and all those sorts of things that go with it. But I think, you know, for larger organisations, the Compassionate Employers Programme, I think, is is one of the, the best I've seen for doing this type of thing. And although it's coming from Hospice UK, so, you know, they're coming at it primarily from that angle of anticipatory grief. It provides people with those vital skills, those transferable skills that will work for all aspects of grief, loss and bereavement. And just any sort of sensitive topic that needs to be discussed, really. It does depend very much on how much work does it, this look like it's going to be. Some people will say, well, actually, I'll pay you your daily fee for as long as it takes. Other people say, actually, can I pay a one-off fee up front and you do it all? So, yeah, that is is a problem with consulting. What I will say is I am 
priced for SMEs. I am in that affordable bracket and I am wanting to work with SMEs to improve their approach to workplace health and well-being. So I will work with people to come up with a price point that works for them. Something you mentioned there that was interesting was menopause Mm. and being in surgical menopause myself and knowing the traumas that causes of trying to work or not, as the case may be. Is that something that's becoming a bit more widely known, sort of supporting people? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We are seeing a much more increase in people understanding that we can't shy away from talking about menopause anymore. I mean, we have um, an ageing workforce. Our demographic, people are working longer. More women are working longer. You know, this isn't the 1950s anymore. You know, we, we are working um, much longer. And we should be able to work work longer. We shouldn't have to go, do you know what? I've hit menopause and I, I didn't sleep last night because I sweated through the duvet three times, you know, and I, I, I'm so tired today that I can't come in. We should be able to say that to our boss, say, do you know what? I'm going to be a little bit late today because I just really had the worst night ever but I will be coming in or I'm going to work from home today if I've got that facility or you know can we change shifts so I only work afternoons all of these sorts of things that we can do and I think we are starting to see much more of a shift in organizations understanding that and working towards making sure we're supporting people through the menopause and raising awareness so that those that don't personally experience it understand what's going on and how to be compassionate about it how to have inclusive conversations where we're not discriminating and we're not going oh god there having a flush again you know we need to be inclusive with the language and the conversations that we have and yeah it definitely is something that we're starting to see much much better but equally and a lot of people fail to think about this when we think about menopause is that that grief aspect that comes with that loss of fertility Especially, and this might be something that you can resonate with, it's something if you've had that fertility journey and this is, this is it, this is where that then stops. That can be so, so difficult for a lot of women to process and to deal with and it is a grief and it is a bereavement and you've got that on top of those physical symptoms that are going on as well and the other, the sort of other emotional things that you're experiencing and I've mentioned it to a couple of people before and they've gone, I've never thought about it that way. But now you say it, that is what I'm experiencing. And I didn't understand that before. Yeah, you get caught up in so many other things. I remember after I had my hysterectomy, sort of months down the line, just finding myself thinking, well, if I got pregnant or just just loosely, because I'd had that the whole whole way through the, the, the infertility stuff. If And it's still there as a, as, a, as a mind pattern. And I remember just sort of thinking to myself, no. That's a never now. That's never going to happen. It's a weird thought because your mentality doesn't change overnight because something happened physically in your body. Yeah. So it is a weird thing to go through. And for me, we'd already fortunately made that decision. So the hysterectomy wasn't what stopped us having children. But if that had been what had stopped us having children, that would have been a whole different ball game. Yeah. Because there would have been a lot more grief attached to it in other ways. And it is exactly the same as, you know, when we lose someone that we love, the amount of times we go, oh, I just tell them about, oh. I can't. And it's exactly the same thing. It takes the brain a little while to understand and to reconcile with what's happening. And absolutely. And it's something that isn't talked about enough when we talk about menopause. We concentrate on the hot flushes, anger management issues that people have and how to approach work. But we very rarely talk about this grief element that comes with it as well. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true because they kind of you're hearing a little bit more now about things like the brain fog and how you know women have thought that maybe they're getting early onset Alzheimer's yeah. and things because their brain has feels like it's changed so much without the right hormone support. But you don't hear so much about the grief aspect. Um, so you're right. That's a kind of an area we're sort of catching up a little bit, but there's so much to it that needs. And the fact that every female goes through it, it's just mind blowing that it's not something that we're taught about even as women, let alone the men. Oh, absolutely. So the company I worked in previously, I ran a, a workshop for people that will experience menopause. And I start off by talking about what hormones are, how they work in the body, what they do, and the three hormones that are part of menopause. And people are going, three? Like, yeah, testosterone. So many women that I've spoken to that just go, I've never thought about testosterone. Is that, well, that's why your brain function's going all over the place because the testosterone levels are all over the place. Why aren't we talking about menopause? It's so bizarre. But that's one of the first things I do is start by educating so that women can understand why they're getting the symptoms they're getting. If they understand what those hormones do in the body and the role they play suddenly most of those symptoms start to then make sense you start to understand why your skin is dry because your estrogen levels are low and all those other things we've gone off at a tangent now no we have yeah I could do that one for an hour but I won't (laughs) but no you're right it's it's such a complicated journey and I had no idea when I was embarking on it I thought I was solving one problem and I became it became a whole other one with hormones they're not fully understood medically yet I think that's the problem isn't it even the experts are saying there's still areas of this we're working out we're catching up but I I like to think with all this stuff that even if we don't see the fruit of it whether it's menopause or bereavement in the workplace you know, we're paving the way for those behind us. And I think we are just, there's a lot of things in this generation that we're trying to stand up and speak about and and help. And I think that's it. We, We all know any culture change takes a long time. And that's essentially what we're doing. We're trying to open up a door to talk about things that for the, for the most part, certainly for my entire life, you know, people haven't wanted to talk about. And to change that takes a long time. But we're working at it. And I think certainly over the last two to three years, this whole area of how our health and well-being impacts us in the workplace and vice versa, we are starting to see there's a lot more to it. And people are starting to really think about it, really understand it and see what we can do to make improvements. Could have spoken about this all day with you. Yeah, you best stop me. But I have (laughs) one more question. So we've been talking about our workplaces becoming more aware of bereavement, loss, grief, menopause all those other things so as a useful tool for employers to have this information and knowledge going forwards for their employees if it represented a tool for them what kind of tool would it be so I thought long and hard about this thinking about the support and the training that we provide in the workplace to help health and well-being and that it's something that's going to help an organization thrive And I think it's a water irrigation system or a sprinkler system because these are transferable skills that we're we're talking about as well. You know, while we're, we're focused on bereavement, being compassionate is a transferable skill. So an irrigation system is going to get vital resources to where it's needed quickly so it's efficient and it's effective. And specifically for bereavement support in the workplace, it is the best place to do that. We, we are best placed to get that support to people quickly because we're going to see them much more frequently than our sort of social communities. Ooh, an irrigation system for water. I like that. I'm already picturing a fancy gutter on the edge of my metaphorical shed roof that collects rainwater, shoots it down the drain pipe and into a water butt that's attached to a hose pipe that has strategic holes in it so I can automatically water the plants effectively when I turn it on. 
Water and how it gets to where it needs to be is an extremely vital tool for any garden to thrive. If you want to find out more about Sam and Gaia Workplace Wellbeing, you can check out GaiaWellbeing.org and I'll put a link in the show notes. You can also hear Sam's other interview for our 101 Lost episodes, Lost 44, about the death of her brother through autoerotic asphyxiation, where she spoke out for the first time on how hard it is navigating a grief that people don't know how to speak about through the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge on such an important area, Sam. And thank you for joining us and listening to The Silent Why. If you'd like to support the podcast and my work, which is entirely run on kind donations from listeners, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash the silent why, link in the show notes. And if you've got a subject you'd like me to chat to an expert on, please get in touch via our social media or the website or email thesilentwhy at gmail.com. And let's chat. <laughs>